0: Oh, that song we sang before the Lord's Supper. You ever think about those words? They're so beautiful, isn't it? I'm a wonder, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice those to his blood. One of my favorite verses in the Bible comes in the Gospel of John, wherever uh, John sees Jesus walking by early in the ministry of Jesus, actually right before it gets kicked off, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I know you know the verse. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're going to be talking about that a little bit this morning, but before we start, I want to tell you something. When I was in high school, I had this buddy named Mike, and I had uh, uh, another friend named Denise. One day, Mike comes up to me, and he says, "Uh, Craig, what do you uh, you think about Denise? And I said, oh, Denise is pretty great, Mike. Yeah, I think you got to... Denise, I'm a big fan of Denise. I can see the two of you maybe hitting it off. And a couple of days later, Denise comes up to me and she says, uh, Craig, what do you think about what do you think about Mike? And I said, oh, Mike, you know, Mike's a great guy, Denise. I think two of you might hit it off, right? Now, I did not introduce Mike and Denise. I cannot take credit for introducing them. But I did field, you know, uh, questions of them about the other one and encouraged the relationship and Pretty soon, you know, Denise had been, you know, she'd been going on dates. It seems like every weekend she was, she was uh, out with somebody different. Well, she had a few, few different suitors, you know, that kind of, as the week's by, would come see her. But when, when her and Mike started seeing each other, they decided to, you know, to enter to a new level of commitment with one another, just see each other, you know. And uh, pretty soon they got married, and that's been going on nearly 30 years now. So I kind of look back on that matchmaking ability of mine, and I think, oh, I did, I did all right there, right? So when Aaron called me and said, uh, Craig, what do you think about Mineral Springs Church of Christ? Actually, he called me and said, uh, I actually, I've had him in class. I, don't know, I didn't know him too well. I had him in class, knew him a little bit, knew he was a really smart young man, and uh, really impressed with him. I'd never heard him preach before but really impressed with him as a young man and is, a, is a, so intelligent and such a good guy. And he calls me and said, what do you think about Mineral Springs Church of Christ? And I said, oh, you ought to check them out. <laughs> he said, what about, the, what about this Sunday? And I said, well, you should go this Sunday. Go preach out there, you know. And, and then, uh, you know, hear from some of you guys. What do you think about old Aaron? Oh, I think you all ought to check out old Aaron. So now I'm feeling like the matchmaker this morning. I'm feeling pretty good. I, I understand you all have entered into a new level of commitment with one another. This is pretty fantastic. This is like a, you know, a, new, a new era and age you guys are entering as a community, and, you know, I had a little something to do with it. So I'm feeling pretty good this morning. I hope you're feeling good, too. Uh, I will tell you, uh, you know, any kind of long-term relationship you have, there's going to be things go wrong. Somebody, oh, Mike and Denise, they've been married for nearly 30 years now, but some point along the way, you know, Mike said something stupid to Denise. Or Denise said something that hurt Mike's feelings, something she shouldn't have said. We do things to one another. It, you will laugh about it, but also sometimes, it's, sometimes it's, it's not laughable. Sometimes we really hurt one another. And sometimes our relationships, our long-term relationships are strained. Strained even to the point of Breaking and we feel close to one another, we feel like we're in community, but then something happens and it's, it's hard, it's strained, it's tough. How do, you, how do you have a long time committed relationship with somebody over many years? Well, it takes, it's going to take a couple things. One of the things is, whenever you mess up, you've got to be willing to say, I messed up, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And then you've got to be willing to say, yes, I'll forgive you. <laughs> Right? I mean, it's kind of that simple. But actually, both steps of that are things I want to talk about this morning, both sides of that equation. All right, now, put that aside for a second. Uh, <clears throat> the next little few minutes, I want, to, I want to talk to you about something I talk about in one of my uh, philosophy classes at Harding. Now, I know I just lost everybody. What they say about philosophers, we can go down deeper, stay down longer, and come up drier than anybody else. I hope that's not the case this morning, but I, but I do. We read this book. Uh, it's, it's Actually, I say it's a philosophy class. It's actually a class called Christ and Culture. And we read a book called More Ready Than You Realize by a guy named Brian McLaren. And in this book, there's a young lady named April who is not a Christian, but she's thinking about becoming a Christian. And she's emailing back and forth with Brian McLaren about Christianity. And you know she's interested and in, she's attracted to many of the teachings of Jesus, and there's much about the church she's attracted to, to be honest, there's a lot about the church she's not attracted to, too. There's some things she's worried about. And there's some even some Christian teachings she doesn't quite understand. And at one point, she asked Brian McLaren, she said, Now, why did Jesus have to die? Have you thought about that question? Why did Jesus have to die? Can you hear the question? The question is something like, Christians seem to think that something about Jesus' death on the cross, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, something about Jesus' death on the cross in some way affected our forgiveness or our salvation or our ability to overcome our sin, something like that. How does that work? How is it that Jesus' death on the cross had any impact at all on our salvation or our ability to be forgiven or something like that. Why did Jesus have to die? That's what April asked Brian McLaren. And Brian McLaren said, that's a tough question. Can I think on this one? <laughs> and he goes on. By the way, these, what we're talking about here are different. It's sometimes called theories of atonement. What explains how the power of the Christ, how the power of the cross had, the atone, had an atoning power? These are theories of atonement what they're talking about. So Brian McLaren says, this is a tough one. Let me go home and think about this one. I'll get back with you. He's talking to his brother about it. And his brother says this. His brother says, well, you know, Jesus himself didn't know why he had to die. And Brian McLaren, that struck Brian McLaren as a profound answer. And that's actually what he said to to, to young April. April liked it as an answer, too. And I always ask my students when we're reading the book, I say, guys, what do y'all think about this as an answer? Jesus himself didn't know why he had to die. And a little fewer than half the class, they always raise their hand. They like this answer. And I say, well, what is it about this answer that you like? And normally they say something like this. Well, it allows us to embrace mystery about this. We don't really fully understand how this works. And it it gives us permission to embrace mystery. Oh, by the way, I should have said this. One of the passages that um, Brian McLaren uses to support this idea that Jesus himself didn't know why he had to die is think about Jesus' words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I having to die? Jesus himself didn't know the answer. And this allows us to embrace the mystery. We don't understand exactly how it is that the cross of the Christ provides this atoning power for us. And they like that, that it gives us permission to embrace mystery on that as well. But a significant portion, of the, usually a little more than half of, of the other students, they raise their hand and they say, I don't like this answer. And I say, well, why don't you like the answer? And they say, well, because it makes it seem like there's no good, like it's inexplicable. <laughs> right? Like it doesn't make sense. Like, like, like there is no good reason about why Jesus had to die. But it, at the very core of the teachings of Christianity is the idea that something about the power of the cross provided an atoning sacrifice for us. This is central to what it is to be a Christian. And so the idea that Jesus himself didn't know makes it sound like there's not a good answer to that question, and that's a problem. And so I'll say, okay, well, what do do y'all think? What is the answer to that question? How, How is it that the cross of Christ provided an atoning power for us in regards to sin? And normally the first answer given, somebody will raise their hand and they'll say, well... You know in the Old Testament, how it worked with the Israelites. When when Israel would sin, which was regular, just like the rest of us, so they would regularly offer these atoning sacrifices. They'd take an animal, say a lamb, and they would sacrifice that lamb as um, uh, a sacrifice for their sins. And the guilt of their sins would be placed on the the lamb who was sacrificed, and that would would atone for their sins. They also did other things like goats that would leave the community and stuff. We won't get into the full range. But this is the idea. And the idea is that Jesus is like the perfect lamb. Being, Being sinless, he is the perfect lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Echoing back to the earliest days of Israel when the Israelites are under Egyptian bondage and they are in slavery to evil powers and they can't get out on their own. They need help. And death is coming. And if they want to be saved from death, what they do is sacrifice the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and place it over the threshold, the door to their house. And if they do that, that provides the power for them to be saved from death, and then they're led out of enslavement through the waters, where they finally make it to Mount Sinai, and there God orders their life. Right? All of these are echoes of the Old Testament. Jesus is the perfect Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now, these, these kinds of theories of atonement are sometimes called substitution theories of atonement. Jesus was our substitute. You and I stand guilty, deserving punishment for what we've done, And Jesus, though he was sinless, took our punishment. And in taking our punishment, uh, he made it possible for our sins to be forgiven. Uh, These are substitutionary accounts of atonement. Now some people, give me a little bit longer with this and I'll come out. Just hang in there with me a little bit more. Some people don't love substitutionary accounts of atonement. There are some complaints against them. Here's, Here's a few of them. One complaint against substitution counts of atonement is that it doesn't make sense of justice. Let me me explain why some people think that. Suppose I was the head of Enron. Y'all remember Enron? Right? I can't remember the guy's name anymore, but he defrauded, you know, thousands of people of millions and millions of dollars, including many of them, their life savings. Right? Um... I, I might be remembering the facts wrong. If I am, just pretend I've got them right. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, don't make it in, Ron. I'm like, I'm, like I'm like a really bad guy who's defrauded thousands of people of millions of dollars and, uh, you know, taking people's life savings. And um, I've been caught, and I'm standing trial, and I've been found guilty, and the judge is standing, you know, he's, he's at the, uh, you know, the, whatever that thing's called, where the judge is. <laughs> He's up there, and he's got his gavel, and he's getting ready to pronounce, announce sentence, my sentencing, what justice demands given what I've done to people, how I've harmed people, the lies that I've told, the fraud that I've committed. And he's getting ready to announce sentencing and put the gavel down, and just before he does so, a person in the back of the courtroom stands up and says, Your Honor, wait one second. And the judge says, What is it? I just want you to know, Judge... I just want you to know, I have never broken the law in any way. Never sped. I've never broken the law in any way. I am completely blameless before the law. And the judge says, well, that's good. Man, had, There are not many people like you out there. That's pretty impressive. Great job. But I'll tell you what I'll do, judge. I will don't send him to prison. Send me to prison instead. I'll take his punishment. Okay long as somebody goes to prison. Wait, how to sending an innocent person to prison on behalf of the guilty? How does that meet the demands of justice? So some people think, I don't think the substitution account really works. They're not sure about it. Other people worry that substitution accounts of atonement make the work of Jesus just about his death. What about his teachings? What about his life? They say Christians who only understand atonement accounts of salvation become vampire Christians. They're only interested in Jesus for his blood. Their Christianity is just fire insurance. With nothing about like our life now and becoming sanctified. And uh, or Here's another complaint. Salvation with substitution accounts of atonement become just about salvation from guilt, not salvation from sin. We think of forgiveness as just something we get to, uh, uh, to, to take care of the guilt of our sin. We're guilty, and somehow Jesus' death on the cross can take care of our guilt, but what about the actual power of sin in our lives? What about like you know my anger, or my lust that I deal with, or my greed? What about the fact that I'm controlling of other people and I need help to stop being controlling? Who will help me with that? I'm an addict, and I need help not just with the guilt of my sin, I need help with my sin. But if your only understanding of of, uh, atonement is a substitutionary kind of atonement, all Jesus' death on the cross is is about your guilt, not about actually helping you overcome sin in your life, about you actually becoming sanctified. It's all about justification. Here's the last complaint. And sanctification just becomes a theological add-on. It doesn't really matter if you're a good person or not. You can be a complete jerk as long as you've done the things you're supposed to do or said the things you're supposed to say so that you get forgiveness. And then you go to heaven when you die, and it doesn't make any difference what kind of person you are. Sanctification just becomes a theological add-on if your only account of atonement is substitution atonement. This is one of the complaints against it. Now these are complaints worthy of our attention. We shouldn't dismiss them, I don't think. On the other hand, you look at Scripture, and there's a lot of pretty compelling accounts of substitution atonement as an explanation of what's going on, on the cross. Consider, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I'm going to go through several verses, and I'm just kind of picking some verses out, so it's going to be hard to keep up with me, but I think, I think it'll do what I'm wanting it to do. and I think I'm being faithful to the verses. Romans 5, eight. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 3.25 God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Finally, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Clearly uh, an allusion to the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse. How did He do that? By becoming a curse for us. And if you have a substitution account of atonement, he took on the punishment that was due us. Now, some people think to themselves, you know, the courtroom case with Enron I gave earlier, sure, it doesn't make sense to send, it's not like sending an innocent person to prison on behalf of the guilty. That doesn't meet the demands of justice, granted. But an innocent person can pay the, like, let's say you owe me a million dollars, right? Right? If somebody who doesn't owe me me a million dollars comes up and pays it off, that's okay when it comes to, like, debits, like credits, right? Like, he paid the the debt we couldn't pay. And so when you think about paying debt, sometimes people shift away from substitution accounts of atonement to something called ransom theories of atonement. Y'all remember uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? You ever seen the movie? The movie version is pretty faithful to the the novel written by C.S. Lewis. And in it, I don't know if you remember this scene, but in it, Edmund. Edmund is the brother who's come over, you know, into Narnia, and he's the one that ate the... What did he eat? Turkish Delight. Turkish Delight. He ate the Turkish Delight, and it's so good, he became like, you know, um, a slave to the White Witch. He fell under the power of the White Witch, and he had betrayed his brothers and sisters to try to get them to fall under the power of the White Witch, too. He betrayed them. He's a traitor. And towards the end of the movie... The white witch and her forces go into the camp of Aslan. Aslan represents God. The white witch represents the devil. Edmund, in in one sense, represents all of humanity in this scene. And the white witch comes up and she says, You have a traitor in your midst, Aslan. That boy is a traitor. And by, by the deep magic of Narnia, by the deep laws of Narnia, his blood is forfeit. It's rightfully my property. And Aslan says... Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was here when it was written. That's a quote. I remember exactly. Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was here when it was written. So apparently, like, if he tried to, like, not give Edmund to her, like, all of Narnia will like, go away. I think she says overturned by fire and water or something like that in the movie. And so Aslan's hands are tied. Edmund... Rightfully belong, he, he's the property of the white witch. According to the deep laws of Narnia. So Aslan and the witch, they go into the tent to have a parley. I think that's the first time I've said parley in a sermon. I like it. They go into the tent to have a parley, and uh, Aslan has, offers the white witch. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do. Take me instead. If you'll, if you'll renounce your rightful ownership of, uh, of Edmund, who again represents humanity... You can take my life in his place. And the white witch says, great, I'll do that. So Dill is struck. He comes out. He says, Edmund's been set free. And they, they torture Aslan, and they kill him on the stone table. I don't know if you remember this scene. Uh, I think it's just the next morning. I don't think it's a three day. He doesn't follow it quite exactly. But the next morning, I think, um, the two young ladies... Lucy and Susan, do I have the names right? I'm looking for, I'm looking for anybody know? I don't know either. Y'all are not, y'all no help to me at all. Yes, I got some confirmation. Lucy and Susan, uh, they go to visit Aslan's corpse, and he's there dead on the stone table, and they're sad, and they're hugging his, his lifeless body, and they finally say, we should go, and they turn to walk away, and as they're walking away, it's just when the sun breaks over the horizon at dawn, and the ground shakes, and they hear a loud crack, and they turn, and the stone table is broken in two, and they don't see Aslan anywhere until suddenly there in the shining light from the sun as it comes over the horizon, they see a resurrected Aslan. And they, of course, rejoice. And Aslan says, the white witch didn't know the deep magic. If she'd interpreted the deep magic differently, she would have understood that whenever an innocent victim, um, I'm sorry, whenever an innocent person uh, volunteers his life in exchange for a traitor, the curse is undone and death works backwards. That might not be an exact quote, but it's really, really close. All right, All right now here's the question. So some people say, okay, so it's not substitution accounts. It's ransom theories accounts. What happened is because of our sin, we're rightfully the property of Satan. And so what happened is on the cross, Jesus said, well, here, I, I'll, I'll take um, I'll take their place if you'll re- if you'll renounce property ownership of them. Now there are some problems with ransom theories too. Now I promise I'm almost done with this. There are some problems with ransom theories too. Um, for one question is why you know, I'm no kidnapper. All right, let me just set that straight. I've never done any kidnapping in my whole life. But if I did some kidnapping, I would pick somebody whose uh, who's, you know dad who's well, I was going to try her mom or dad who I was going to make pay wasn't you know god <laughs> because you got to pick somebody who's not sure to be able to like know where you are or be able to get you back like there's this old uh, movie with mel gibson called ransom and his son is kidnapped and the reason the kidnapper picked him is because he knew he was a payer he had inside information that he would paid some behind the scenes stuff to break up a union or something like that so he picked his uh he picked his his uh his victim very carefully doesn't make much sense if you're a kidnapper to pick somebody who's sure to know where you are and how to get the kid back without paying you why should god pay him well in in the in the narnia movie it's this it's the deep magic it's the deep laws of narnia but who wrote the deep laws of narnia if there's some kind of deep reality that means that god just can't take us back from satan the only possible explanation of what those deep laws might be is that they a reflection of god's own nature Something about, say, the demands of justice. So now we're back to substitution accounts. This is all very complicated. Have you noticed this? (laughs) Even worse than that, by the way. One last thing. So, there's a a beautiful hymn that I love called In Christ Alone. And there's a a line in that hymn. um, Till on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Do you know this line? Some people are made nervous by that line. In fact, The Presbyterian Church in like 2014 asked the authors of that hymn if they could change the lines just for their hymnal and and make it the love of God was magnified till on on the cross where Jesus died the love of God was magnified. Because they didn't like thinking, to them if you think what's happening on the cross is like God pouring out its anger on, on Jesus, it becomes like divine child abuse or something. They didn't like this idea of an angry God. All right. Here's what I'm going to do now. And I know I've got to wrap it up. I I love this stuff and I'm going too long. I want to connect this idea. I want to to try to paint a picture of something that might make sense of God's wrath, of God's anger, and then connect that to the stuff I was talking about earlier about forgiveness. And I want to do that. I want to try to make sense about the anger of God by talking about our own anger when people wrong us. I have some friends named Dennis and Terry Ryan who go to church with me. And about nine years ago, their daughter, Micah, was murdered by their former son-in-law. Can you imagine? Uh, There was a trial. At the trial, Micah's murderer uh, uh, pled guilty. But he pled guilty in a way that he did not actually admit guilt. What I mean by that, it was like a technical thing. He said, well, I don't think I can prove my case, but I didn't really do it. Like, that's like the official, that's not, how it's, that's not what it actually says, but that's more or less the, the pleading. I plead guilty in a legal sense, but I don't actually admit guilt. He never actually admitted that he did it. At the trial, he expressed no, no remorse, no grief. He's never actually even admitted what he did. How did Dennis and Terry forgive him? Should they even forgive him? If they should, what should it look like? I saw on CNN years ago a, a clip that still moves me to this day. It's a, there's a father in a small courtroom. He is a, uh, you can tell he's not a well-educated guy. Uh, he's a... Um, He looks like a a, a strong working man, an African-American gentleman, whose son has been murdered. And the guy who murdered his son is at the front of the courtroom, and he's pleading innocent by reason of insanity. And the father is uh, just moved by grief for his son, and he stands up. And he says, you're saying you're crazy? Were you crazy when you shot my son? You weren't crazy then. He was trying to get away from you. You shot him in the back five times. He got under the truck trying to get away from you, and you kept shooting him. Were you crazy then when you killed my son? You did that. You did that. You killed my son. And you can tell he's he's pouring his wrath out on this person who murdered his son. And you watch it, and it's clear that his wrath is connected to his love for his son. No one doubts that. Does it make sense to talk about the wrath of God? Of course it does. Because, of course, God is a loving God. And when he sees the way, not only, go back to my friends Dennis and Terry Ryan. Dennis and Terry talked about their anger in the courtroom when this guy wouldn't even admit what he had done, Micah's murderer, he wouldn't even admit it. And they were mad. And I don't think they were the only mad people in the courtroom that day. I think God was sitting right there with him, and I think he was mad too. Matter of fact, I think God's been mad at me. I've done things to hurt people. On purpose. You ever purposely done something to hurt somebody? Somebody said something to you, and they hurt you, and you know what you wanted to do? You wanted to hurt them back. And you knew just the way to say that. You knew just how to phrase that. You knew just how to look away. You knew just how to ignore. They hurt you and you wanted to hurt them back. I've done that. I still do it. God forgive me. I still do. I think God's been mad at me. Of course I think there's some anger in God. Now I want to admit, there's a danger in us experiencing God only as an angry God. Anger is not God's primary experience in the world. It's really important that we remember that God is a joyful creator and his act of creation was itself an act of joy. Life and this world are good. They are the good product of a joyful creator who is primarily love and that's what he experiences. But because he is love, when he sees that kind of harm, sometimes he gets mad about it. Now, you can't think of God as always going around angry. If you've got an angry God, man, you better run for the hills. <laughs> You're in trouble, right? So let me go back to, my, my, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. How do uh, how did Dennis and Terry, that's Micah's parents, in what sense do they forgive this man who murdered their daughter and, but won't even admit that he did it? Well, let me talk about forgiveness. Um, I want to say type 1 and type 2, but that would be like that would not be... Forgiveness Part 1, we'll say, and Forgiveness Part 2, right? Forgiveness Part 1 is where you overcome, your, you overcome your righteous anger and you don't let it consume you anymore, right? I've heard it said that anger is like a poison that destroys the vessel in which it is stored. Some of you have been hurt by people who've never even, who will never admit what they did to you. In what sense did you forgive them? Well, I'm not saying you should necessarily seek out a relationship with them. Maybe you shouldn't. I don't think Dennis and Terry should have a relationship. Should seek out a relationship with a person who killed their daughter and won't even admit that they did it. But I do think, for their own benefit, they've got to learn to overcome anger for them. Think about what Jesus says for a moment. Um, pray for your enemy. Uh, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Excuse me, that's what he said. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can they pray for Micah's murderer? What would it be to pray for him? Love does not necessarily... To love somebody at heart is not about wanting good things for them. But it is about intending good things for them. Do you hear the difference? You You can pray for somebody. You can pray God. You can pray that God will help and bless somebody, bring them into a right relationship with himself. Even if you think they should be punished, and even if you really want them to suffer, <laughs> you don't always like yourself, but you always love yourself. You always work for your own good, right? Love primarily is not about a desire for the good of your enemies, but it is about an intention to work for their good. Think about somebody you really don't don't say anything out loud, and I promise I really am revved But think about somebody you really don't like right now. You don't like them. Y'all have experienced even things in this church where there's been great hostility. I'd say they were walk in right now. Truth be told, your desires, your feelings would be like, oh, man. Whoever it is you're thinking about, that, uh. Suppose you heard a story about something really great. They got a big promotion or won a big award or, you know. Deep down you'd be like, oh, man. <laughs> you don't want good things for them but can you still intend good things for them? Can you will good things for them? Can you still say, God, please bless that person? Bless them. I admit, God, I'm not at a place where I can desire good things for them. And maybe over time we get to a point where we even begin to desire good things for them, as forgiveness matures in us. Now, that that kind of forgiveness, it doesn't actually require anything on the part of the person who harmed you. And it doesn't necessarily mean any kind of that you're hanging out anymore. There's no reconciliation in the relationship. But the second kind of forgiveness is different. I hope you've experienced it. I'm almost, I'm almost wrapped up. I promise. I got a long nap in. The second kind of forgiveness is different. The second kind of forgiveness, I hope you've experienced. If you've had experienced it, it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever experienced. This is where you've you've done something to harm somebody. You were thoughtless. You were wrong. Or maybe the other way around. Maybe they harmed you. And this was a person, y'all were close. Y'all were, y'all were thick as thieves. Y'all were like peas and carrots. Y'all were community. Y'all were close. And they did that, or you did that. And the relationship was ruptured. And then they came to you, or you came to them, and you said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry what I did. That was wrong." What can I do to fix it? Is there anything I can do to make up for what I've done so that we can have our relationship back? And they looked at you or you looked at them and said, I forgive you. And miracle of miracles, there's reconciliation. You're together again. Notice this kind of forgiveness. Forgiveness part two requires not only uh, that the person who's the victim who's injured extend forgiveness, but it also requires that the person who is the perpetrator recognizes what they've done wrong and offers penance and says, "How think about uh, Zacchaeus? Whenever he turns to Jesus, if I've stolen from anybody, I'm going to retor- return four times what I stole. I want to make penance. I want to repent for what I've done, so that there can be a restoration, a reconciliation in this relationship." any long-term relationships that are going to work for you anywhere in your life including in this church your relationships with one another your relationship with your with Aaron and Michaela when they come here there's going to be some times where there are ruptures and if it's going to be a long-term kind of relationship the kind of thing where you can remember back oh yeah it was his favorite song you know oh yeah you remember that time the long when when you earn like a lot of memories you know a long time together those kinds of the richest most beautiful parts of human relationships to earn those you got to go through some of the hard stuff and that requires saying to one another I'm sorry I did that will you forgive me what can I do to make it better now maybe maybe what so now let me go back to the second part of the sermon and then we'll wrap it up maybe it works like this maybe there just can't be reconciliation between us and God unless a, uh, the second kind, the kind of forgiveness that leads to reconciliation, it's not that God's mad at us. He actually wants good things for us. He loves us. But there just can't be a reconciliation of the relationship until we've come to God and said, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. How can I make it better? There has to be a penance. And the penance has to be proportional to the grievance. If you say, yeah, 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 uh, if, if Micah's murderer says, okay, finally, I admit I killed your daughter, um, here's a pack of gum." Well, that would make it worse, not better. The penance offered has to be in some sense proportional to the grievance. But what can we do, you and I? What can we offer God in penance for what we've done? We've rebelled against Him. Our our Creator, our Maker, who's given us every breath we take, He gives it to us, and we've rejected His Lordship. What can we offer Him? We have no penance to give Him. And so He says, what I'll do is I'll come be one of you. I'll take on the form of a man, I'll enter into humanity, and I will provide the penance that is required for the reconciliation. He offered it for us. And he says, will you come back to me? There's the penance. Will you come join me again? I want to finish by reading a few verses from the book of Mark. And I forgot my glasses, so we'll see how this goes. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is Mark chapter 15, verse 13, 33, verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus was murdered. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.